You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Brendan, Kruger, Ironside, MD, Big Beard, Willie P, Schmarls, Ketzel, Josiah, Logan, Pablo, Fraser, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack Joyce, The Knight of Dampier, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefei, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. Today's story is full of uncertainty. I don't like to tell these kind of stories too often. I'm not qualified to make some of the educated guesses that you have to make when telling one of these stories. I do it, as we will see today, but whenever possible I like to give you both sides of the story. You know, I'd prefer definitive answers to these questions, answered by historians, but we don't always have that luxury, so here we are, with uncertainty. The second reason I don't like to tell these stories all that often is because there's often little actual story to tell. You know, we have a few scraps of questionable information here and there, and... If we were to craft a narrative, we'd have to fill in a lot of the blanks. Now, when a story with this little information is out there, we can usually just hit the bullet points, right? You know, Pirate X sailed to Island Y and captured Z number of small merchant craft. Easy peasy. But here, today, there is an important story to tell. A story that's worth more than just the bullet points. But still, it's a story with shaky facts and little hard information. The difference, though, in today's story is that the information is not shaky because no one kept a journal and they were on some lonesome island or ship in the middle of the ocean. No, there's so little information today by design. The facts are so shaky because the people in this story wanted them to be. The questions and uncertainties are baked into this story because the people that were involved wanted them to be. And those people, the kind of people in question here, well, things almost always worked out how they wanted them to be. This is episode 209, Pirate Brokers, Part 2. Let's begin today with the pirate ship Bachelor's Delight. She's that Dutch slave vessel captured off the coast of Africa way back in 1683, captured by John Cook and Edward Davis, the same ship that carried William Dampier and sailed alongside the Signet on the second 
Pacific Adventure. You remember this ship. In 1688, Bachelor's Delight sailed into Philadelphia, where much of the crew went their separate ways. Captain Edward Davis left the ship and traveled to Jamestown in Virginia. That's when George Rayner took command of the ship. Now, some time ago I told you that George Rayner sailed Bachelor's Delight to Madagascar, and he did. They captured some shipping along the way and put in at St. Augustine Bay, at the southwest of Madagascar. But there things start to get tricky for Bachelor's Delight, some of those uncertainties. We know that some of the pirates, at least, from the Bachelor's Delight stayed at Madagascar, but a few months after they arrived, another ship, named either the Royal Jamaica or the Loyal Jamaica, arrived at Charlestown in Carolina. And the commander of the Royal or Loyal Jamaica was George Rayner. Now, there are those who have postulated that this ship was just Bachelor's Delight renamed trying to hide her piratical past, and that's possible. But I don't think that's what happened here. See, there are conflicting reports of another ship at St. Augustine Bay. She was in poor repair, but still afloat. And some think, and I happen to agree with this point of view, that that was Bachelor's Delight. The problem is that Signet is also somewhere in this mix. When Signet and Bachelor's Delight parted ways on the western coast of Mexico, Signet headed across the Pacific Ocean, made her way through the Philippines, around India, and all the way to Madagascar, where she met up with her old friend Bachelor's Delight. Now, I have said before that the ship at anchor there at St. Augustine Bay may have been the Signet, and that's possible. But I no longer think that's the case. There are several reports of the Signet at some of the ports she stopped at prior to Madagascar, and they all comment on what poor shape she's in. I suspect that they scuttled Signet there at St. Augustine Bay. They would have, if that were the case, salvaged her guns and tackle and disassembled the ship for use in constructing their shelters and maybe some docks. But there was another pirate there at St. Augustine Bay, a pirate who had been present on both Pacific adventures named James Kelly. When George Rayner took command of Bachelor's Delight, John Kelly was elected quartermaster. And several years down the road, James Kelly was going to be associated with a ship called Bachelor's Delight. There's some question as to whether it is the same vessel or not, so one of two things happened. Either George Rayner renamed Bachelor's Delight to Loyal Jamaica, and James Kelly captured a new ship and renamed her Bachelor's Delight, or George Rayner just got a new ship called Loyal Jamaica. Occam's razor might suggest that that is the more likely possibility. Regardless, we know that the Signet Pirates and many, if not most, of the Bachelor's Delight Pirates were there at St. Augustine Bay. They set up a little pirate harbor with supplies and women and men who were available for whatever pirate cruises might happen by. Pirates who would sign up and embark on the voyage, do the job, take their cut, and then return to St. Augustine Bay, where they would spend all of their winnings on women and rum and gambling. Now, in the past, I've called these pirates the Signet Pirates, and 
That is probably how they started, all men from the signet, but as time went on, that was less and less accurate. You know, pirates would come and go, some would make enough money to return home, some would die, and some would see the tropical paradise there on Madagascar and decide to stay. By about the current point in our story, 1694, most of the pirates from the Pacific Adventure might not have been there at all. Really, we can only confirm that James Kelly and one or two others were still around. And Kelly, well, he wasn't going to be around much longer. In the meantime, though, George Rayner made a life for himself in Carolina. There was some accusation when he arrived that he'd captured a ship belonging to a local planter, but those accusations were brushed aside. George Rayner gave his guns to the colony at Carolina, who were added to the fort at Charleston. Then he paid some of the fees that were due to local officials, and George Rayner was suddenly a welcome member of the community. He bought a bit of land, he got married, and had a mess of kids. Now, there is one report that a George Rayner signed up with Thomas II in 1694. But I find that suspicious. George Rayner in Carolina, we know and can confirm, had made some pretty profitable land acquisitions. Later, he would marry some of his children into very prominent families in the region. Now, midlife crises are real, and George Rayner may have been going through that when he decided to sign up with Thomas too. Maybe he, you know, wanted a taste of the old adventure, but I don't think that's what happened. It's probably a different pirate, either another man named George Rayner or a pirate named Josiah Rayner, who got confused with the former captain of Bachelor's Delight. But it does appear that George Rayner was, in some way, connected to Thomas II and his upcoming voyage. It's possible there's some evidence that he may have invested in the voyage. See, many of those who were involved in the early stages of this upcoming voyage, some of those who invested, for example, they all downplayed their role in the preparations. There were merchants and shipwrights and some prominent landowners and politicians, but nobody, after the fact, nobody knew nothing. A little over a year later, when the news starts to filter back to the colonies, I picture, well, if I'm being honest, I picture that scene from The Devil's Advocate in which Keanu Reeves happens upon a late-night shredding party, but we do better to picture men in cotton stockings, not silk, but cotton. They're wearing buckled shoes and a poofy-armed shirt, no jacket and no wig. It is nighttime after all, maybe wearing a vest. But picture a man in that state standing before his fireplace, maybe in his study, burning papers in his well upholstered study. That's an image that, throughout today's episode, I can't get out of my head, and it's one that I'd like you to hold on to as well. Those men, cotton stockings, poofy shirts, later on, maybe a snifter of rum and a pipe, or more likely a cigar. I'd like you to picture those men, because those are the very same who we are concerned with today, those who always got what they wanted. 
Take, for example, Governor Benjamin Fletcher of New York. Last time we talked about some of the questionable privateering commissions he handed out to what were relatively respectable privateers. Namely, we introduced John Hoare and Richard Glover, and a young man from Martinique named Abraham Samuel. Now, those are all names we should remember moving forward, but they aren't the uh, stars of the show. The most famous and controversial person that Fletcher would hand a commission to was Thomas Too. And Fletcher wasn't a fool here. He knew that Thomas Too was a pirate and he was sending him on pirate business. So, to protect himself at least a little bit, Governor Fletcher couldn't go out handing commissions to every scallywag who wanted to sail with Thomas Too. It would be too obvious, too big. If things turned sour, there would be too many potential charges against him. Now, that was a smart move on Fletcher's part. I mean, things did eventually turn sour. And we can be sure that he was one of those men in cotton stockings, burning papers in his study. A letter from the Lords of Trade, dated 19 October, 1698, reads, quote, We have information that two, in 1694, offered Governor Easton, of Rhode Island, 500 pounds for a commission, which was refused, though it is certain that others there have been guilty of that fault. The fact that two's commission from Governor Fletcher is dated in November, 1694, makes it highly probable that it was not obtained for nothing. End quote. They're saying that they have no proof that Thomas II bribed Governor Fletcher, but that that's almost certainly what happened. But it's those others that were certainly guilty of fault that I want to talk about today. Thomas II's friends, with Governor Fletcher out of the mix, had to cast a wider net to get their own commissions. And I want to begin with Thomas II's quartermaster, Richard Wunt. And you may occasionally see Richard Wunt called William Wunt, especially in some of the older sources, but his name was probably Richard. At least, that's the name that history has landed upon. Kind of like Henry Avery goes by Long Ben or Jack Avery, pirates were known to use aliases. Fun, but it makes them hard to track down. Richard Wunt, though, was a longtime buccaneer. He sailed under Edward Davis and George Rayner on the Pacific Adventures, both of them probably. Then he sailed under George Rayner to Madagascar, and eventually back to America on Loyal Jamaica. Finally, he met up with Thomas II in Rhode Island and signed up as his quartermaster on the first voyage of the Amity. Following their return to America, Richard Wunt purchased, or maybe otherwise obtained, his own vessel. The Dolphin was a six-gun, sixty-man brigantine. Maybe not the most impressive ship, but it was his. Richard Wunt was a captain. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. He outfitted the dolphin in Philadelphia and there's some debate over whether or not he obtained his privateering commission from an agent of William Penn. I tend to lean toward the belief that he did, but we can't be sure. See, technically, William Penn wasn't the governor. He was the proprietor of Pennsylvania. He owned the colony. He was a pacifist, but after that brief visit with King William III we talked about last time, he was more willing to hand out commissions. Regardless, Richard Wundt, captain of the Dolphin, did receive a commission, probably in Philadelphia. He and now his former captain Thomas too, both had licenses. Richard Wundt's next order of business was getting the word out about the upcoming voyage, and to do so he sailed for Newport, Rhode Island. There were a ton of pirates in Newport circa 1693 to 94. The first stop that Captain Want was likely to make would be Captain Thomas Wake. At least, Captain Wake, captain of the 100-ton, 10-gun, 70-man bark Susanna, was the first of the Rhode Island men to get his commission. In his book Honor Among Thieves, Jan Rogozinski writes, quote, The governor of Rhode Island later denied granting commissions, this was technically true, but fundamentally dishonest. The commissions instead had been granted by the governor's deputy, Jack Green. Rhode Island's governor did not personally sign such documents, as Quakers publicly opposed acts of war. End quote. We talked about that last time. Now, that may be exactly how things went down, or maybe not. It's possible that John Green was acting on his own volition here against the wishes of Governor Easton. It's difficult to tell, especially because the Quakers in the Rhode Island Assembly really closed ranks around their governor when accusations started flying a few years later. We can imagine they had their own burning session. Regardless, it was John Green that issued Thomas Wake his commission. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about a group of pirates sitting around a campfire on a Rhode Island beach enjoying bad wine and good company. I told you that that was possibly where they first heard the pirate verses, allegedly by Henry Every. Now, that part of the story was mostly fantasy. We don't know when or if they heard the pirate verses. But at the end of that story, I mentioned Thomas Wake appearing on the beach, recruiting. Now, I also made a mistake there. I told you that that was Thomas II's quartermaster. That was of course, Richard Wundt, but Thomas Wake was there in Rhode Island recruiting men for the mission. 
he was almost certainly the pirate that brought word to Joseph Banks and Joseph Farrow, respectively the captain and quartermaster of the 90-ton, six-gun Portsmouth Adventure. Soon enough, soon enough, Banks and Farrow had their own commission from Deputy Governor Green, but Joseph Banks wasn't going to stick around. Soon after getting their commission, Joseph Banks left the crew and handed his letter of mark over to the now Captain Farrow. And that raises a question for me. There's this narrative that pops up in the wake of the voyage to come. It's parroted by the Lords of Trade and every one of the governors involved and the rest of the high society folks who were accused of some sort of impropriety. The narrative goes something like this. When word of Thomas II's upcoming voyage was announced, it spread like wildfire all across the New England colonies. Thanks to the rumors, New England saw, and this is a quote, servants from most places of the country running from their masters, sons from their parents. End quote. They were all running off to join the pirates. And as it happens, I believe that part, but... Well, you know, I'll let Captain Charles Johnson give the account from A General History of the Pirates, Volume 2. It reads, quote, Captain Two lived unquestioned in America and had an easy fortune, and designed to live quietly at home. But those of his men who lived near him, having squandered their shares, were continually soliciting him to take another trip. He withstood their request a considerable time, but they having got together a number of resolute fellows, they, in a body, begged him to lead them but for one voyage. They were so earnest in their desire that he could not refuse complying. They prepared a small sloop and made the best of their way to the Straits, entering the Red Sea, where they met with and attacked a ship belonging to the Great Mogul. End quote. Bit of a spoiler there at the end, but that passage tells us that Thomas too wanted to stay in America, but his men begged him to go. It's something that we hear over and over and over again. I mean, in the Buccaneers of America, it told us that Henry Morgan just wanted to stay on Jamaica, but his filthy, dirty, low-born men gambled away all of their winnings, that which they didn't spend on women, and demanded he take them on another voyage. Still, we hear it about all of the ships that are about to set sail from a number of different sources. Now, it's the kind of thing that I would oftentimes disregard completely, but it is odd that Joseph Banks chose to leave his vessel after getting his commission, but before setting out. Maybe he realized that they were not going to sail for Canada and raid the French there, that they were going to sail east and engage in some piracy. That departure, for me, is a strong argument in favor of the a bunch of poor sailors really were behind it all storyline. But on the other hand, the flip side of the equation is all of the other evidence and all of the testimony that is to come. That all of these rich, powerful, influential men from New England to London that funded and outfitted their ships specifically to sail for Madagascar, that all of these preparations began immediately after Thomas II returned from his first voyage of piracy in the Red Sea. All of these 
rich, influential men who, oh, never thought that these privateers would turn to rogueries, your honor. We only wanted them to engage in honest trade, maybe privateering against the hated French. Honest, legitimate, God-fearing actions. And then, of course, there's Adam Baldridge, who they also didn't know was deep in skullduggerous waters. It really stretches credulity after a while. I don't like to make allusions to modern politics, and I'm not going to do so here, but we all know, no matter where you happen to be from, of at least a dozen different times, at least, that all of our governments have just brushed whatever uncomfortable information they want to hide right under the rug. And we all, all of us, know that they're lying about it, right through their teeth they're lying, but nothing changes, their friends are protected, no one faces the consequences of their actions. No matter how guilty these rich, powerful, and influential men happen to be, well, they're never found guilty, right? We all live in that world, and I think we're all aware of it, and the pirates lived in a world that was very much the same. I mean, maybe, maybe those poor sailors really were behind it all. Maybe Thomas too did want to stay in America, but at a certain point you've got to wonder, can you, I mean, can you blame them? So, at this point, we've got commissions for Thomas too, and Richard Wunt, Thomas Wake, and Joseph Pharaoh. That's four of the pirates who are going to go on this voyage down. The final privateer is a man that we've met before. William May. We should all remember William May. He was a member of William Kidd's privateer crew back in 1690. The crew that mutinied against Captain Kidd and took his ship, the Blessed William. William May was part of the crew that alongside Samuel Burgess and Edward Coates and Robert Cullerford, sailed the pirate round. They were ashore in India in 1692 when they were attacked by Mughal soldiers. They had to leave Robert Cullerford behind in a Mughal jail, and eventually William May returned home aboard the Pearl, a brigantine of 200 tons, 16 guns, and 100 men. William May is going to be Really, the entire crew of the Pearl and all of those former associates, they're all going to be very important moving forward. In the voyage to come, certainly, but even more so once Captain Kidd throws his hat into the ring. For now, though, William May needed a commission. But exactly how that happened is even more difficult to pin down than the others. Some sources say that he picked up yet another license from Deputy Governor Green. But there are others that suggest he sailed over to Boston to get his commission from William Phipps. It's hard to say. I think I've made it clear by this point that once those accusations from the Admiralty and the Lords of Trade started filtering back, accusations of what they called pirate brokering, once they started getting tossed around, the truth gets really hard to pin down here. It's not impossible to think that some of these guys might not have had commissions at all. Just, uh, yeah, I've got a commission from, uh, what's his name? You know, the, the, the guy with the witches, uh, Phipps, that's it. Regardless, William May claims to have had one, which gives us five ships. There was William May of the Pearl. Thomas Wake of the Susanna, 
Joseph Farrow of the Portsmouth Adventure, Richard Wundt of the Dolphin, and finally, Thomas II of the Amity. And then, far from New England, but who will eventually be a member of this fleet, Captain Henry Every of Fancy. But here I'd like to introduce a few other mariners that were along for the ride. First, there are two pirates I want to mention who were aboard Amity. According to his own testimony, there was a Mr. John Ireland who was hired to serve as navigator. Mr. Ireland tells us, or really told a grand jury, but he said that he was hired under the understanding that they were going to sail for Canada. Specifically for the Bay of St. Lawrence, where they would attack the French. I mean, obviously. The Bay of St. Lawrence is why you sign up with Thomas II, famous Red Sea pirate. A man who was personal friends with the governor of New York and had been declaring for months now his intention to sail back to the Gate of Tears. You know, you sign up with a guy like that to sail for Canada. For, I don't know, Cod. Yep, that's, that's real believable. Sure thing. But John Ireland, in that testimony, would tell the court, quote, The company of the sloop, or the greater part of them, rose up against the captain, by which he means Thomas too, and told him they came out for money, and money they would have before they went home again. End quote. Now, I don't want to give away the game here, but John Ireland... After he signed up aboard Amity, and before he gave that testimony, was one of the most wanted men in the entire world. There was a laundry list of charges against him, and many famous names and famous stories that we will talk about involved him specifically. I will also note that nobody, at the time, and few historians now, believe that story. Still, that's what he had to say. I'd also like to mention a Mr. Richard Bobbington, who was probably serving as a bosun aboard Amity. Later on, Mr. Bobbington will become much more relevant to our story. I just want you to know he's aboard. Then, there is Tempest Rogers, who may have the coolest damn name in the history of piracy. Blackbeard, ha! Tempest Rogers, at your service. Tempest Rogers sailed under Captain Thomas Wake, but for now, he's a minor player. These five ships, once they all allegedly had their commissions, well, it's hard to say what kind of a relationship they all had. You know, were they a cohesive fleet? Did they all sign up under Thomas II as their pirate admiral? This is a strange time for the pirates. These were not the Brethren of the Coast. They aren't all going to fall in line behind someone like Henry Morgan. All we can say for certain is that this fleet did have a common destination and a common purpose. Their purpose was plunder. To find, capture, and loot the biggest and richest Moorish ship on the high seas. And this time, it was these men that were going to get exactly what they wanted. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to be a patron on Patreon. 
everybody who has left us ratings and reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show, you all make it possible. Thank you. I do have a couple of show notes this week. As many of you noted, we were having some trouble with the website that took some time to iron out. However, finally, the website is redesigned and back up. Our entire catalog of episodes is up there, and all of them have a downloadable version available, something that many of you have been asking for for some time. You can also make comments on the episodes, which I will read, or you can get in touch with me at the episode also. The Treasure Island audiobook and future projects will be found there in short order. You may also notice at the website that there have been some changes made to the episode numbering. While I was designing the episode, I may have gone a little George Lucas and decided to touch up the feed a bit. None of the content is missing, it's all still there, but I did condense a number of episodes. Whenever I went on what feels now like a particularly self-indulgent series of episodes, say the Glorious Revolution or King Louis XIV, I combined them into one long episode still there for you to listen to, but it's also easier to skip for those who don't care to. The change in episode numbering has not yet been implemented on the RSS feed, but it will be showing up in the near future. So in the next few weeks, when you see an episode pop up that seems like it's out of order, don't worry. It's the right episode, just with a new number. This is something that I've been wanting to do, but now felt like the time to get it out of the way. Because from this point on, there's really not going to be much of a pause in the story of pirates and piracy. It's only going to get faster, bigger, and more dangerous. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our new and improved website, PirateHistoryPodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight